This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. After a short summer break, we are back to our weekly routine. Is it good to be back, Zachary? Definitely. And today we are taking on, I think, what is uh, one of the biggest and most complicated issues in our society, one that I think underpins all of our political conflicts, all of our social conflicts today, one way or another. And it's the issue of inequality in our criminal justice system. The United States, as most of our listeners know, and as we've talked about in prior podcasts, is a country that imprisons more people than any of our other uh democratic industrial peers. We're also a country that has a long, long history of uh, inequality, racism, uh, and other injustices and inequities in the ways that we handle criminal justice. And by some accounts, those inequities have become worse in recent years. Uh, We're joined today by uh, a scholar and practitioner who has has spent uh, much of her career both dealing with these issues as as a, a lawyer and studying them uh, as a scholar. This is Vita Johnson. Uh, she is an associate professor of law at Georgetown University. And uh, prior to joining Georgetown, she was a supervising attorney in the trial division at the uh, Public Defender Service uh, for the District of Columbia. Uh, And uh, there she was assigned to some of the most serious cases in what are known as the felony one level. Uh, Her experiences included numerous trials in D.C. Superior Court representing indigent clients facing charges, including homicide, sexual assault, and many other uh, armed offenses. Uh, Vita's uh, responsibilities at have included supervising various other trial attorneys and serving as one of the agency's representatives to the D.C. Superior Court on sentencing guidelines. So she spent a lot of time thinking about and debating these issues. Uh, At Georgetown, she's been writing uh, about these issues as well. And we will include uh, with today's podcast a link to a recent very powerful piece uh, that Vita wrote for uh, Lawfare uh, called Policing and the Siege of the United States Capitol. Vita, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Before we get into our discussion uh, with Professor Vita Johnson, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, What's the title of your poem today? Prayer of the Unjustly Imprisoned. Let's hear it. Behind Swedish draperies, we waltz and waltz. We hold each other in a cold and empty room. We can feel each other's hearts, his pulse, his pulse. We weave our days carefully, threads upon a loom. In the window, the sun shines today, each day. We look up from the iron depths and watch the light. We ask the same thing, come what may, that it may still be shining when we leave warm and bright. Ask me who is innocent or right or right, that they have told us this is freedom when it's hate, that it doesn't matter who is right or right, just keep the truth hidden here, rotting in the crate. Behind Swedish draperies, we waltz and waltz. They don't look at us at all, we will bloom. They think that we're missing, that they win. False, 
and false. They'll disappear into the earth. We will bloom. Wow, that's powerful, Zachary. Uh, what is your poem about? My poem is about, really about uh, two things. First of all, the experience of the unjustly imprisoned, the, the terror of, of, of being imprisoned either for a crime that you didn't commit or being imprisoned for an unjust length of time in unjust conditions for a crime one did commit. And twofold, that uh, the society uh, of, of the United States today uses prison uh, in order to hide the poverty and uh, our own failings. Um, and uh, instead of using prison as a way to uh, improve our society, we use it as a way to ignore the bigger problems that we face, and we leave the true culprits, the true injustice, unanswered. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Vita, before we talk about um, your recent writings on many of these issues, your your impressions of Zachary's uh, assertions? Oh, I could not agree more. Absolutely. And I think um, part of the conversation we'll have about policing um, also highlights some of the issues um, that were discussed in the poem. Great. So, so I, I I thought we'd start actually with this really powerful recent article you wrote about January sixth. Many of us um, are thinking a lot about that day, following not only the horror uh, of what happened, but then of course the the hearings that that have been uh, a major part of political discussion uh, through the early part of the summer. And, and you argue that uh, the heroic narrative about the Capitol Police is really only part of the. Story. Story, that there's much more there, especially related to deeper issues of injustice in the criminal justice system. Can, can you summarize some of your arguments for us in that sense? Sure. Um, but before we get started, I just want to say a couple of things. Um, I'm Please. absolutely going to say some things that are critical of police, but I want to say that I think the vast majority of people who get into policing do so for all the right reasons. Um, and before we jump right into January 6th, I want to just lay the backdrop that I think probably all of your listeners know, but maybe um, haven't really thought about in the context of January 6th. And that's that police are entrusted with a lot of power. We give them weapons, we give them access to sensitive information, and they get specialized training to use against their neighbors, right? They're the only Americans authorized to use force legally against other Americans. So it's a lot of power and it's a lot of responsibility. And we shouldn't give this kind of power and responsibility to people who lack the critical thinking skills or ability to address threats adequately. And unfortunately, I think what we saw on January 6th um, shows that that there are police officers who aren't really thinking clearly about um, a lot of things going on in modern American life. Um, and so I, I think it's against that backdrop that, that we should think about January 6th. So in the, both in the lawfare article um, that you've mentioned and also a, a longer law review piece that I wrote and published in the Brooklyn law review, I make the argument that American policing was complicit on what happened on January 6th in four different ways. The first is that the Capitol Police didn't adequately prepare for what was going to happen on January 6th because they underestimated the threat that this 
white Trump supporting crowd was to them. Um, and that's unfortunately due to their own implicit racial biases. And keep in mind, it, it, you know, it's January 6th feels like yesterday, but it also feels like a long time ago. But keep in mind that in 2020 and sort of mid to late 2020, there was a lot of things going on in American life that um, should have been clues to what was going to happen on January 6th. So if you remember the um, protests that were happening around police violence and racism and policing, there were um, a lot of militia groups, far right militia groups that were making themselves known at these protests across the country. And then after the November elections, there were a number of um, militia groups and just regular ordinary armed people showing up at voting locations and at vote counting locations. So we know that there was a lot of um, possibility for violence in this far right crowd. But unfortunately, the Capitol Police weren't ready for it. They didn't have um, the kinds of crowd control measures that they normally do for um, big groups and other protests that had happened um, you know, recently uh, back then. Um, you know, there weren't, um, uh, aerosols they could use to disperse the crowd. The police officers weren't in riot gear, so they didn't have head protection. Um, and so there was just a lot of ways that they could have been able to disperse the crowd. And, um, as a result of being unprepared, they ended up in hours of hand-to-hand combat with Americans who were trying to overthrow the election results. Um, this, so that's the first way is that the capital so, so, estimated the threat. Yeah. So, so Vita, uh, just on that point, uh, because I think it's such a powerful point, and I have to say, until I read your piece, I hadn't thought about it that way. What is the evidence that that was racial bias, not just incompetence? Well, so I want to be clear, I'm talking about implicit racial bias. So, right, right. Um, this is not, you know, police officers who, you know, are, consciously thinking racist thoughts. These are the sort of, um, it's, it's sort of the, the implicit biases that all Americans and all humans have, um, to be more, um, to trust people that look like them, um, more than people who don't. And so we know that, that generally law enforcement has underestimated the threat from, far right groups. And it's just actually in some ways um, just natural human nature, right? We trust people that we can relate to more. Um, And so we know that a lot of the, a lot of law enforcement are um, disproportionately white. And there was um, just a, a, a group that is more likely to see this, um, this crowd as um, non-threatening, as opposed to other big protests like the Black Lives Matter protests that police had been policing in the summer of 2020. Um, right. So, and- so as I under, as I understand your argument, uh, because I think this is such an important argument you're making, uh, it, it's that this first argument is that if this had been a group of uh, African American men and women um, coming to the Capitol in a similar way that the police would have been far more prepared. 
absolutely they would have they would have seen them more as a threat and there were lots of warnings from law enforcement around the country um, from FBI field offices um, they had ample notice that this group was going to be um, violent and that they were looking for certain key members of um, of Congress and yet the police were not adequately prepared they didn't even have um, normally when there's a a big um, protest. They call up people who have vacation or days off planned. They didn't do that. Um, and there's just a lot of ways that they were unprepared for what happened on January 6th. And ultimately, um, things did not get under control until the Capitol Police called in the Metropolitan Police Department, which is the, the main district of right. Columbia Police Department. But I should tell you that the Capitol Police is actually pretty big. Um, it's about, it's a police force, the size of the San Diego's, um, police wow. department. San Diego is a big wow. city. Um, and yeah. these are, these are about 2000 police officers to guard a couple of buildings. So I think your question really, um, leads into the second way that law enforcement underestimated, um, this group. And that's that they've been doing it for a long time. Um, the, police and law enforcement generally in this country have underestimated the threat from far-right groups, despite years of evidence that far-right extremism is one of the biggest terrorism threats that we face as a nation. Um, We know that um, there were a lot of um, incidents in um, taking place in America that should have, um, you know, made law enforcement think more about the far right as, um, as being a threat, particularly on an important day like January 6th. I mean, as I mentioned, the, the groups of people that were at the vote counting locations, but you don't really have, there's, there's more evidence, um, of far right extremism before then there were, were the, um, shootings in El Paso, um, just a few years before the shooting, right. the mass shooting at synagogues, both in Pittsburgh and in San Diego, um, the, there'd been the, um, the shooting at the Pulse nightclub in, um, Florida. There are just a number of, um, incidents that should have made law enforcement generally see the far right as a threat, but unfortunately, um, that hasn't been happening for quite some time. Right. I really think until January six. And if if I may ask, um, what would you say to those who would argue that that maybe this is a because I think that there's there are many people who would at least um, instinctually think of these as separate issues, right? At but the uh, unpreparedness of police to respond to far right terrorism as opposed to um, uh, violence on the left. And then the racial um, inequalities within the criminal justice system. Uh, how are those connected? Um, oh, well, I think they're um, very connected. Um, you know, before we talk about modern policing, there's a long history of explicit racial bias in police departments. I mean, some of the first police departments in the United States were groups of um of white men who organized themselves to 
police the comings and goings of enslaved people and catch, you know, what we now refer to as runaway slaves. Um, we know that police allowed lynchings to take place for um, many, many years, sometimes on the courthouse steps um, without a single arrest being ever made for that type of racial violence that went on in this country. Um, we know that even if you just go back about 25 years, you can see um, that there were um, white supremacist groups in LA police departments, um, in Cleveland, Ohio in 1999. Um, there were Nazi symbols found in every single precinct there. Um, wow. I mean, there's the list goes on and on. There were Texas um, police officers who were recruiting um, more officers um, for the KKK. So there's just a long history of racism and policing. Um, and, you know, there's also just been a rise in um by racial violence in this country, really since the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Um, so it's, it's really not hard to see that this sort of extreme um, thinking about racial subordination wouldn't end up on police, you know, in, in police ranks as well. Especially when you Think about how attractive policing is to um, someone who holds that sort of explicit racial bias, right? Like you get to control the comings and goings of um, whole communities, really. You get to use violence against uh, people. Um, so it's a, you get specialized training. It's a, it's a very attractive um, profession to people who are interested in subordinating racial groups. To me, uh, uh, Vita, reading your uh, piece, it 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 the, the, what what really startled and shook me was I think uh, it's your third argument, right? Which is that in fact there was a great deal of sympathy and maybe even uh, encouragement for the actions of the insurrectionists or some element of that within the police forces at the time. Um, am I getting your argument right? And yeah, and- I think I think you, I think you are. I mean. So we know that there were capital police that day that were sympathetic towards the group. There, there were a number of police officers who were investigated um, by the capital police since then. We and we've all seen the selfies, right? We've we saw on January sixth and the days that followed those images of police officers who were pausing to take pictures with the insurrectionists. Um, so we know that there were some capital police that were sympathetic towards the group and maybe had the same political leanings. We know there was, I think it was an FBI agent who's being prosecuted now for um, helping some of the insurrectionists cover their tracks um, saying, Hey, look, they're investigating you. You should pull, you should take down some of these social media posts. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence that there were police officers who were, um, who facilitated the attack within the Capitol Police. Um, It's worth saying, though, that the Capitol Police is one of the most opaque police departments um, in the country. And so we actually don't know the details of um, some of those investigations. We don't know know, whether anyone was fired or anything along those lines. 
because, because they're part of, um, the legislation that authorizes, um, that keeps the Capitol from being um, subject to FOIA, um, the Capitol Police are also not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So we just have less information about them than we might about another police department. And to clarify for our listeners, uh, those of us who are scholars who study these issues, one of the things we rely on is the Freedom of Information Act and various other versions of that that allow us at the state and federal level to get access to documents uh, about state and federal institutions. And uh, Vida's pointing out, I didn't know this, that the Capitol Police are an institution that's very difficult to get information on. I have the sense, though, that that's true for most police forces, though. Is that correct? Um, yes and no. I mean, it is very difficult to get information about, um, specifically police officer discipline. That's notoriously difficult to get information about, but Capitol Police are extra special in that way. We don't even know the demographics of the Capitol Police Department. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, so just sort of zooming out a little bit, and and I'm glad we started with January 6th um, because I think it, it allowed us to be specific and not not platitudinous in, in what we're talking about here. But now that we have a case study, and of course, there's much more in your article that you didn't have a chance to get to here. But zooming out, what what are the implications for thinking about criminal justice and policing in our society. I, I feel, and I think many of our listeners might feel this way too, that our debate is often a very simplistic one. Are you pro-police or anti-police? And of course, of course, you're not anti-police. I'm not anti-police, right. but, but there are problems there. So, so how should we think about this? Well, I, I think this is um, really the question, right? Um, how do we make policing better and what are the ties that we can see? And I think really... Um, the, the fourth point of my article might might help us get there. And that's that there sure. were police officers who actually, active police officers who actually attacked the Capitol, right? So we know that there were um, officers, at least two have already been convicted for the attack of the Capitol and arguably attack on democracy. Um, but I really think a lot about not just the officers that were at the Capitol building itself, but at the office, about the officers who were at the rally that preceded that, um, the, the Capitol siege. So, so if you think about what was happening at that rally, what they were rallying, rallying to do, the point was to undo the results of the November, 2020 election. And so if you think about what that means, that there were, you know, dozens and dozens of police officers from across the country who attended that rally, there's only two reasons, right, that you would go to that rally. Either you legitimately believe that the election results are incorrect, right, that the, that the, the, that the election was actually stolen. So either there are officers who believe that or they're officers who don't think it was stolen, but they want to overturn the valid election results. So you have officers who are either delusional or they want to reverse the results of a popularly elected presidential election, right? Um, And so both options are pretty unacceptable for 
anyone, but particularly for public servants. And so if you think about that, I think it's a really interesting way to think about what's happening in policing. So police should be public servants, right? They get paid to keep people safe, right? And ideally, they're supposed to be protecting everyone in our country. But unfortunately, not just the the research I, I've done around the January 6th incident, but some of my other um, research about explicit racial bias and policing has led me to believe that there's an us against them mentality in policing. Um, and so the police don't always see themselves as the public servants that we'd like to think they are. Um, I think police often um, really see themselves at war with the communities that they're supposed to be protecting. And I think you see that in a lot of different ways, not just on January 6th and not just with um, police violence against people of color. If you think about COVID-19 anti-vaxxers on police departments, you know, the, the police officers who just refuse to get vaccinated or refuse to wear masks. If you think about police officers who were QAnon followers, and then of course these January 6th election deniers, you're, we're talking about police that have a hard time separating fact from fiction um, and who don't see themselves as part of the community that they're supposed to be um, policing and keeping safe. Um, and, and that I think is, is, a, is a big problem for us as Americans, because like I said earlier, police are the only ones that get to use force against other Americans. Um, and we give them a lot of information. And so it's pretty scary that we have so many officers who really don't see themselves as, um, as as existing to keep us safe. So if I understand what you're describing is you're describing a group of, of public servants uh, entrusted with far more responsibility and far more privileges than most uh, other public servants who are for some reason held to a lesser standard when it comes to employee culture, health, uh, and, and, and political actions outside of the workplace. How did we get to that point? How is it that police departments uh, are allowed to operate in many circumstances with impunity? That's a great question. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of ways that that's come to be. Um, I think it has become very politically unpalatable until maybe the last couple of years to question police or policing or police budgets. And that's allowed um, police departments to grow in size, number, and power. We also know that police unions are really some of the only um, worker unions with any power in this country. And that's also allowed police to have a tremendous amount of job security. I mean, think about it. If you told your employer that you wanted to, you know, take a take off a couple of days to go try to overthrow an election, they'd probably say no, right? And you might your job might be at risk. Um, but you know, scores of police officers did that on January sixth. What do you see as some of the things we can do? I mean, I I think the historical trajectory, in some sense, 
is obvious. As you said before, you know, police forces uh, in many ways have an origin moment around the use of violence against particular communities, and they develop a certain uh, paramilitary identity in some cases, uh, and they've been privileged in the union structure of, of the workforce. Um, I, I guess many people, including yourself, have written about that. Um, I, the harder question for me, Vita, is what do we do about it? Uh, what's what's yeah. feasible as a response? I, I, I think that's a very difficult um subject. I think there's so many problems with actually reining this issue in because of the way our police departments are organized in this country. You know, we don't have like one federal agency that is governing policing this country. Instead, we have, you know, a lot of local state, even county by county police departments. So it's really difficult to um, rein in what's happened, so I'm not I'm not sure I have a, a great answer. Um, most of my research has been focused on um, explicit racial bias um, on police departments, and more recently, far right extremism on police departments. And I think there are ways to um, try to get those types of officers off police forces. I think we need to do a far better job at screening police officers, um, prospective police officers before they make it onto the force. Um, I often tell a story about an officer in Little Rock, Arkansas, who was completely honest when he was asked if he'd ever um, been, been a member of any um, white supremacist organizations. And he admitted attending a KKK rally when he was a teenager and the Little Rock, Arkansas um, police department said, Oh, thanks so much for sharing with us. And they pat him on the back for um, being so forthcoming and they hired him anyway. Well, he went on to kill a, a young black um, teenager in, in that city. And the only way we've learned about this guy's past was because of the civil lawsuit that followed but obviously they needed to, and we all, you know, every police firm in this country needs to do a better job of um, keeping people like that from being police officers in the first place. Um, but mm -hmm. we also need to periodically check in and do background checks on officers once they're hired. Um, you know, people sometimes become more, um, um, more prone to extremism as they age. So, you know, the person you are politically in your late teens or twenties, when most police officers get hired is pretty different than who they're going to be um, in their forties or in their fifties towards the end of their career. And so monitoring their social media, um, you know, monitoring their work emails and text messages for sort of keywords that might indicate that there's a problem. I think that's just common sense. And I also think this sort of monitoring of police needs to be done, not just by police departments. I think they need to contract with outside organizations um, to do that kind of thing, because there is a, you know, I'm sure you've heard the expression, the thin blue line, but there's a, a real blue wall of silence regarding any sure. police officers um, misbehavior. And so it's just, 
it's, it's very common for police officers to protect one another. And so making sure that there are people who are, don't work with these individual officers who are the ones monitoring. I think those are, are both really good um, steps in the right direction to have fewer extremists on police. Right. right. Well, that sounds like basic checks and balances, but I, 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 I guess <laughs> what's your response to the, the, the response I've heard from many police officers and others, um, which is that what you're describing would be an infringement on their freedom of speech. Well, I think that's um, really common response and you it's true that any american can have um the ability to say and do whatever they you know really say anything they'd like but that that doesn't mean that they can be a police officer at the same time so it's pretty common in lots of um fields for certain employees to have fewer first amendment rights we see that for federal government um, employees, for example, and it's definitely true for police officers as well. They don't have the same um, ability to share um, political views, for example, as as other members of our community do. But that's that's a choice they made by becoming police officers. And I think the same is true for police officers who hold extremist views. We just they can't be the people that we entrust with, you know violence, weapons, and training, and hold far-right, anti-government, and um, racist views. So I guess the the final question, this has been so uh, insightful, Vita, the final question I I wanted to ask you, and and it's a question or a form of a question we always use on the podcast, we like to close on an optimistic note. Our goal is to use the historical and scholarly analysis of our discussion to point to opportunities, especially for our young listeners, ways that they can get involved in making change and use scholarship and history to improve the world. Um, what are some of the positive developments you see out there, the organizations, the activities, the scholarly groups that I'm sure you're a part of? Uh, what are the things that people who are motivated and inspired by what you've said, and I'm sure there are many listening, uh, what are the things they can get involved in to make a difference? Well, I think the good news is January 6th laid a lot of this bare. And I think a lot more people are interested in what's going on with far-right extremism and the threat to democracy that that is for all of us. And that's certainly um, true when you think about policing, right? If, if, um, If people hold a dim view of policing because police officers uphold our laws, they hold a dim view of America. So it's something that we all need to be critical about. And I think there's, um, I think, everyone's just paying much more attention to that than ever before between, um, you know, the sort of racial reckoning summer of 2020 and now January 6th, I think, um, there's been a lot of eyes opened, um, across the country. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it ultimately is a good thing for police. Um, and I think police should welcome this sort of, um, critique and, um, in internal reflection about what ways that they could do better. Absolutely. And the other thing I think is we need um, more women on police to police department. So if you're a a young woman out there who's trying to think about ways to make a difference, um, we know that that's actually um, 
that just having a single woman on a scene actually is, makes the chance for violence go down. Um, and so yeah. I don't know I'm, I'm not necessarily encouraging any more police, but I think the ones we have could be replaced by um, <laughs> a group of young women. I, women are uh, only 13% of police firms in this country. And that's something that we can change. Huh. Wow. Well, that, that gives us a lot to think about. Zachary, uh, what's your reaction to this discussion? I know this is an issue that animates you and many other young people when you think about um, the problems of our democracy today. And I know in your travels this summer, you were seeing how other societies handle these issues perhaps better than we do. What, what, what's your reaction to our discussion today? Well, I think it's very enlightening uh, to help us sort of understand how we got to this moment. And I also think one of the things that this helps us understand is that what went wrong on January 6th, uh, but not just January 6th, but in the events of the past few years, is not that there were some people who who, who were trying to overturn our democracy or were trying to to spread violence that's always been there, but that the, 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 the law broke down, right? That the mechanisms that are the, and the people that are supposed to protect us uh, failed. And I think we have to uh, recognize that if we're ever going to prevent something like this in the future. I think there's a lot to that. And I think we can see this actually as truly defending law and order. Right? Law and order is often used as a, as a, uh, a catchphrase to justify more policing. Or a dog whistle, or dog, and, and and a racial dog whistle, and in fact, uh, truly protecting law and order is, I think, what what Vita is talking about. Vita, I want to give you the last word. Um, I thank you so much for having me. This has been um, a, a real pleasure to get to speak with both of you. And I think, really, the thing that we should all be thinking about is if if we're going to reimagine policing, I think reimagining policing in a way that keeps everyone safe. Um, is the most important thing we can do. And so focusing on um, far-right extremism and racial violence, um, not just within policing, but within America, I think that's going to be the best way to keep everyone safe. I think that really captures what's at the center of all this, which is uh, the growth and continued festering of uh, far-right ideology and white supremacy and its connection to many of the other structural uh, inequities in our society. Uh, as a democracy, we've long struggled with these issues. That's what our podcast is about. And today we've, I think, gained a greater appreciation of how these issues relate to current policing and criminal justice issues and some avenues for thinking about uh, how we can improve, if not, if not eliminate, but at least improve the circumstances in our society and in our democracy. Uh, thank you, uh, Vita Johnson, for joining us. Uh, again, uh, Vita is a professor at Georgetown and uh, a, a scholar of uh, criminal justice and policing in America, as well as a practitioner uh, in the field. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Vita. Thanks again for having me. Zachary, thank you for your um, poem and for your insights, as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.